This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. As we get into this text uh, that Matt just read for us in 11 and 12, like I am the guy that drew, drew the straw to do the sermon on circumcision. You know, that's always fun exciting to do. Um, but we're, we're going to, you'll see how we, how we get to our point today. I want to be just completely upfront with you. Like we're going to be talking about baptism quite a bit today. And, and the point of today's sermon is not to uh, necessarily give you like a theological understanding of baptism, although we certainly hope to do that. The point is to invite you into understanding what you walk in and what you get to participate in with the identity that you've been baptized in or ultimately you've been invited to live in through Jesus. And so we hope for those of us that are believers that have already experienced baptism, that today becomes a great reflection. We hope for some it could be a great motivation to take a step of obedience. And then ultimately, if there's people here that don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, like first and foremost, we just want to welcome you here today. Um, but secondly, we would like to say, like, listen up, because we're going to be, in, we're going to be showing you some stuff today that... that you, can, you are more, more invited to walk in. You are totally invited to walk in with us and ultimately to walk in with Jesus. Um, verse 11, we start off looking at it. It starts with two words, in him, at the very beginning. In him, as it goes into talking about, in him you were circumcised um, with the circumcision made without hands. In him. Paul, the Apostle Paul writing here, it clearly is talking about um, those of us that are already united with Christ. So in him paints the picture of a union already with Jesus. And then he says, you've been circumcised with not a circumcision of hands, but one of the spirit, one without hands. And, and to understand a little bit of where they're going with the concept of circumcision, like circumcision was a practice and a procedure that happened uh, in the life of really was like God's idea that his people would be marked with this cutting and it would be like an identity for them to be just kind of known and distinct from the rest of the people of the earth. And so what Paul is saying is like for a long time, like those, those people that would have been the people of God, ultimately like the people of Israel, or what now we would even say Jewish people, um, there, the, the act of circumcision was a physical identifier, a physical identifier of being marked in the covenant. And what Paul is getting at is he's saying that if you're in union with Jesus, in him, it's actually the spirit of God that marks you, not anything else. And you are marked not by hands, but by the spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that what Paul is writing about is that it's really about the covenant that you're invited into. And yes, it paints the picture of what family you belong to. But think of it this way. In the Old Testament, starting with a guy named Abraham, God's people grew by procreation people having kids. So Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 tribes and God grew his family and kind of, and, and even made a promise to Abraham, like, I'm going to make you a father of many nations and you're going to, you're going to be a people that are blessed so that you can bless other people. But the people of God grew through procreation. Well, in Jesus, the people of God don't go through procreation anymore. They grow through adoption. It's actually not about who your physical parents are and what physical family you belong to. It's about what spiritual family you belong to and that are, if you're adopted into that family by Jesus. And so what Paul is getting, getting at here is there's a marking on you 
that is actually less about what earthly family or practice you belong to and more about what the Spirit of God would do for you. And then it gets into verse 12 about how Christ, so kind of splits between verse 11 and 12, that we actually have the circumcision of Christ. And it says that his marking is having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So here's what we get to with that. Jesus is not more known by his physical marking as a Jewish man than he is by the powerful work that he did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Like when it comes to Jesus, we're not supposed to know that he is a member of the family of God because of his family lineage and even his family practice. Like more significant to his life than a procedure that happened in his infancy is his life, death, and resurrection for us. Does that make sense? We are, he is more marked by that. There, therein lies the fact that we are more marked by that. Like we are also more marked by what Christ has done for us rather than anything else. And quite frankly, this is a, maybe even a verse that we could use a little bit today in our current cultural climate is that the people of God kind of love to be identified by other things. We love to be identified by how we vote. We love to be identified by what we're against, probably even more than what we're for. We love to be identified with like random, like cultural or even political alignments. But what this text is telling us is that the thing that actually should mark who we are in the world is not a mindset or a worldview. It's the fact that we should be marked by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's what it means to be included and united in him. And one of the ways that we see that most clearly is baptism. Verse 12, it, verse 12, it mentions our baptism into death. It says that, um, that we have been buried with him in baptism and also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So verse 12 is talking about the baptism of ourselves dying in Christ and being raised to new life in Christ. But I've got to give us some context here because if we're going to take that phrase of baptism in the death and parallel it to the fact that what we've, so like when we think of baptism, we think of the thing that happens in a tub with water. Like for us to get from baptism into death to the thing that happens in the, in the water tub, we've got to like kind of chase it out uh, scripturally. So water baptism becomes symbolic of our baptism into death in the spirit of God. You with me? All right. So I got to give you some context. We already preached verse 10. We're going to be speaking on verse 13, 14, and 15 next week. Butch is going to be leading us in that. But I can't just leave this here without looking to what answers the question in verse uh, 12. It says that we were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what does that mean? The powerful working of God that raised him from the dead, from the dead. what does that mean for us? Well, it tells us in verses 13 through 15, it tells us what this work in. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your sins or trespasses by Canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over you. I'm going to give you a little preview into next week. One of the reasons that we want to be people that are marked by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is because what it offers us victory in. And what it offers us victory in is there's two things in this next few verses. Now, there are more things than two, but there's two things specifically in this context that Paul mentions. He says that the work of Christ defeats two enemies, and he names them. In verse 14, we just sang a song a minute ago that said we stood beneath a debt that we could never afford, and he paints the picture that the first enemy that Jesus defeats in his work, 
is the enemy that's of the record of death that stands against us. Right there in verse 14. That you and I all have a record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands. Now what that's saying is, is that we fall short of God's glorious standard of perfection. Right? Like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, that work of falling short has a price. And the price is death. It's just for the wages of sin is death. So we stood beneath a debt we could not afford to pay. There is a record of debt against every single person. And that record requires punishment by death. And how did Jesus defeat that? It says it clearly in the text. He disarmed it, or he didn't disarm it. He canceled it by taking that record of debt and nailing it to his cross. He nailed it to his cross. So like you and I get to live in the reality of defeated sin by the power of the cross because of the work in Jesus. That's one, that's one of the things that we get baptized into. Are you with me? So that's number one. Number two, the very next verse. So not only did he cancel a record of debt, he erased a record of debt. He defeated the spiritual beings, the rulers and authorities and principalities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in himself. So he defeated this host of evil spiritual beings, the devil and his forces. Now, I was growing up in church. I remember hearing like they were usually older people and they would talk about Satan. And they, there's a lot of like little things about Satan or the enemy that people say. I mean, Jesus himself says that he's a father of lies. When he speaks these lies, he's like a roaring lion. He masquerades as an angel of light. But one of the things that in old school church I used to hear all the time is Satan's an accuser of the brethren. Anybody ever heard that before? He's an accuser of the brethren, meaning that he like in the courtroom dynamic, the role that the enemy would always play would be the prosecuting attorney. No, 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 that can't be true of him. No, 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 that can't be true of Matt. Have you seen what he did? This, this, that can't be true of Matthew. That can't, that can't be true of, of you. That can't be true of Andrew. That, that can't be true of Kayla. Like he, that's what he does. He's an accuser, right? And then the work of Jesus is kind of your classic defense attorney that's always, or the Holy Spirit's kind of your classic defense attorney that's like actually the work of Jesus paid for that. So he's an accuser of the brethren. Now the way that, that Jesus defeats the enemy, and it says this in verse 14 or four, verse 15, is he disarmed them, meaning that the accuser of the family of God actually becomes the convicted one. Actually, he gets shamed. Actually, he gets armed disarmed. Actually, he gets stripped down. And so the work of Christ on the cross defeats the enemy of the record of debt held against us, that is our sin, and defeats the one who would remind us of our sin. Does that make sense? That's what we are buried into in baptism. And so baptism means that we have a witness with Jesus. Like we are with Christ. We have a union with him and it comes from what we said earlier, the transforming and redeeming work of the Spirit of God taking up residence in our lives. The transforming and redeeming work of the Spirit of God taking up residence in our lives. Last week, Kirk talked about the, re the transforming and redeeming work of the Spirit of God like being at home in our hearts. And so it's from that place, kind of in line with this text, that our union with Christ really is shown off and displayed. The same Spirit of God that gives us faith to believe the work of Christ is what we're baptized in um, and what we're buried and raised in. The same Spirit of God that gives us the faith to believe the work of Christ is what we are baptized, buried, and raised with Him in. So it's the, it's the powerful working of God 
as a result of the Spirit of God in our lives. So as we talk about, as we get into like understanding what baptism is or what it is or, or what baptism really is, we're going to talk about what it isn't. Okay, so to go with me here for a minute. Now, some of you are like, why are we talking so much about baptism today? Spoiler alert. I don't know if you want to look around, um, but we meet in the, the Baptist Campus Ministry Building. Those three letters out on the front, BCM. And we meet in the Baptist Campus Ministry Building because, and this is going to be surprising to some, but we're actually a Baptist church. Some of you are like, what? I go to a Baptist church? You know, like, so it's true. It's okay. With support groups, there's all sorts of stuff we can talk about later. Um, but we are convictionally this primarily for, the, for one, this is one of the primary reasons is when it comes to understanding and walking in what the, the reality of what baptism really is. So we're going to talk about what it isn't. The first thing it isn't is it's not a spiritual resume build. For a lot of people, baptism becomes like the checkbox. I'm like, yep, been there, done that, have the t-shirt. Literally, some churches, you do get a t-shirt, you know, like been there, done that. I've got all the stuff. This is part of my story. Now, while we say that, we want to recognize that baptism is extremely spiritually important, extremely scripturally important. But another thing that it isn't is necessary for salvation. It's not a requirement for salvation. Now, some of you are like, whoa, this is new. Or you maybe are coming from some different backgrounds or some different theological backgrounds. I'm going to unpack some stuff with you today. If it was a conversation you would like to have, we can have one. But I want to stay on the front end that the goal of me saying that is not to um, like give like any exaltation to a specific doctrine or denomination or theological preference. The point of me saying that baptism is not necessary for salvation is, the, is really the point of me saying the one, like salvation, what's required for salvation is not nearly as much about a what as it is about a who. And who is required for salvation is Jesus. Now I want you to look at some verses with me. I'm going to rattle these off. They're not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to rattle these off uh, of some verses that show us the um, emphasis on our salvation depending upon the work of Jesus as it is and how we can re then respond to that. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. It's Romans 3.28. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith in what? The powerful working of God, as we talked about, we have peace with God. Romans 4.5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justified the ungodly, their faith is counted as righteousness. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Acts 13, 38 and 39, through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone who believes it is freed or justified from everything from which you could not be freed or justified from the law of Moses. And then Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It's not all who believe plus some other things. It's just all who believe. We have a case study on what it, on baptism, baptismal requirement for salvation. And the case study is there was a moment on, in the gospels of, of Jesus where he's on the cross and the guy next to him on the cross professes a belief in him and he says to him, I tell the truth, today I will remember you and you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. Now, we don't think that he got down off the cross and got baptized and got back up and died and went to eternity with Jesus. And I know that Jesus has the ultimate like exception clause because he's Jesus, but he wouldn't do something for one person that he would invite us all into. Now, that being said, I want, for those of you in the room, 
that are pretty savvy. Some of you are like, well, what about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, baptism saves us, Andrew. What are we going to do about that one? How, how does that fit into your argument? Well, let's read that verse. 1 Peter 3, verse 21, it says, baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, the corresponds to this statement, little clause there. It's actually talking about the rest of that chapter. It's talking about Noah and the flood. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to point out a few things in this verse that could be helpful for us. The first one is, um, baptism, which now saves you, is not a removal of dirt from your body. So in a weird way, this verse kind of undermines itself when it comes to the functionality of baptism. It's actually saying, you getting washed by water is not even that important. It's not about the removal of dirt from your body. It's not about an activity that we are functioning to accomplish. It actually is tied to the resurrection of Christ. Do you see that in the verse, verse 21? It's actually an appeal for good conscience through what? The resurrection of Christ, that we might be buried and raised by faith with him and in him. It's still faith that saves us, but it's our baptism that's our response to the faith. Now, I mentioned earlier, this verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, talks about, says, which corresponds to this. Now, you can go and look for the context if you want to read that yourself in 1 Peter chapter 3. But the context around this is Peter is talking about uh, Noah and the flood. And I think it's interesting that we talk about water in this way. The Noah story, which we all know, is that God saved eight humans and two of every kind of animal from destruction, right? So let me ask you a question. Eight humans, two of every kind of animal were saved. What killed everybody else? It's, you can answer. Water? I thought you might say water. The real answer is sin killed everybody else. God just used water. And when it comes to baptism, what saves? Water? No, Jesus. Jesus does. He just uses water as a symbolic reference that what, what, what was once an, an article of, or of a weapon of destruction to a people is now an avenue or a pathway of salvation. What was once you were actually buried in death because of your wickedness, you can now be buried in death and raised in the newness of Christ. Does that make sense? That God actually redeems water being a, something that destroys to something that saves. But the reality is the sin destroyed, and the greater reality is Jesus saves. Now, over the earth being flooded, however many years ago that was, we were given a symbol as a promise, weren't we? What was that? A rainbow, that God would never do this again. But over our baptismal waters, we have a much greater symbol than a rainbow. We have a cross, an empty tomb, and an occupied throne. That's what we get at the at at the event of our baptism, is we get the symbol not of a rainbow, we get the one of a cross, an empty tomb, and an occupied throne. So we come to the conclusion that while baptism is extremely important and an act of obedience and a commissioning for followers of Jesus, that the only thing necessary for salvation is belief in Christ. But for our understanding and our act of obedience, it is absolutely appropriate and absolutely encouraged, and I think we would do well to hold each other to accountability and what it means to say we want to participate in this because of what it means and declares of the testimony of our life. Does that make sense? So I'm not under, I'm not downplaying the significance of baptism. I'm just trying to give you better handles 
on how to understand how it fits into the process of our salvation in response to Jesus. Another thing baptism is not is it's not fireproof water. All right, like we get it out of the tap, okay? There's nothing extra special about it. But if there's nothing extra special about the water, well, that is true. There is something special about the identity that we get to walk in as believers, and that's actually an identity that's imperishable. We'll talk about that in a minute. The third thing is not. Baptism is not for the forgiveness of sins. How do we know that? Because we just read Colossians 2, 14. It says that forgiveness of sins, the record of debt held against us, isn't dependent upon our baptism. It's dependent upon the cross of Jesus. It's nailed to the cross. That's where our forgiveness of sins comes from. And so baptism is one of these things that, that showcases or displays what we have come to know and make home in our hearts, not as much a rewashing. Now listen, I have been at the Christian conferences and the camps and all sorts of things where I feel guilty and stirred up and fired up and I'm like, I need to get rebaptized. And And I have that sense because I feel dirty or I feel guilty or I feel ashamed or, or I feel like I need to, to repent and re- be redeemed and like maybe even recommit my life. And listen, I think the Holy Spirit of God absolutely would lead you to repent and redeem and recommit your life. But I think the truth of the gospel is Jesus doesn't stink when it comes to washing us clean. He doesn't, he doesn't stink at it. He knows exactly what it means to save you. And he knows exactly what it means to sustain you. And so we don't come to the baptismal waters for a re-washing or a re-application of the blood of Christ. We come to the baptismal waters as a testimony that he is, he is committed to us. And he is calling us to bury our lives in him and be raised to walk in the newness of life with him. We're going to make mistakes in that newness of life. Yes, we are. But that's where we trust the identity of being a dearly loved son or daughter, of walking in the righteousness of God to actually cover that because of his work, not our commitment to go get clean again. Does that make sense? Okay. So, third, if we talked about those three things, or those four things, it's not a spiritual resume build, it's not necessary for salvation, it's not fireproof water, it's not for the forgiveness of sins, and what really is baptism? The first thing it is, is it's an agreement. And I say the word agreement because I really want to say another word, and that's the word confession. We think, when we think about confession, we often think about telling people the bad things we've done. <laughs> If you confess, it's like, whoa, get ready. You know, like he's going to spill the beans on some stuff. But the word confession in the New Testament is really the word homo legeo. Homo meaning same and legeo meaning thought or saying. And so the idea of confession is when God and I agree. So like I confess my sin because I agree with God that it's a sin. Does that make sense? I agree with God that pride is a sin. I agree with God that lust is a sin. I agree with God that, you know, fill in the blank is a sin. I, I agree with him. That's part of my confession. But confession doesn't always have to be just places of sin struggle. I also agree with God that he's great. I also agree with God that he's a provider. I also agree with God that he's, that he's not lacking anything. I also agree with God that he has fully blessed me with everything that I need. I also agree with him in all these things. And so our baptism becomes an act of confessional agreement. Now, old church used to do stuff, and maybe you've come from church backgrounds that have a little bit more liturgy than we do here at Commonwealth City Church, um, and they will practice the saying out loud of confessional or creedal statements. Quite frankly, I love that stuff because we need to speak out loud what's true about us. We need to speak it into other people as well. I get the opportunity all the time to to sit down across from people. And sometimes we talk about a section of scripture. Sometimes we talk about whatever's on their heart. But a lot of times what we end up doing is just preach the gospel to each other. And so baptism is an agreement and a confessional act that agrees with what God's done for us 
and how we respond and walk through that. The second thing it is, it's an act of obedience. In Matthew 28 at the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go therefore into all nations and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to live just like I've been living around you guys. Teach them to do everything that I'm telling you and I'm modeling and asking you to do. And so baptism becomes an act of obedience. It's not something that should be glossed over. In fact, I mentioned the thief on the cross earlier as the one example in the New Testament, or as a, our example of the New Testament that, of somebody that wasn't baptized, but yet it seems that Jesus saved. But here's the reality. That's the one exception. Like there is nowhere in Scripture in the New Testament any concept that someone would believe in Jesus and not follow through with baptism. It's completely foreign. In fact, it talks about whole households being affected by this, by the spread of the gospel. And yet somehow in our current climate and culture, we let kind of separate like, well, I'm ready to be saved. I don't know if I'm ready to be baptized or I don't know if I want to walk in this yet. But like, like that is, that is like an oxymoron in the New Testament, like an unbaptized believer. It's just not something that existed. But yet in much of our life today, it seems to. And then the third thing, what, baptize, what baptism is, is it is an invitation into identity. When Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, listen, he doesn't say Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because those are three like little churchy words that he just rattles off his tongue. He says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it is extremely important for us to recognize the identity that we get baptized in, in our Trinitarian identity that we get baptized into. So I'm going to unpack this for you. The first one is Father. We are baptized into an identity of knowing God as our Father. Now, this is significant for us because what that makes us is a dearly loved son or daughter. In fact, at every wedding that I do, I say to the bride and the groom, like, I want you to know that the most important role you can play in each other's lives is not as husband and as wife, but as living out of the overflow that you are more than anything else, a dearly loved son and a dearly loved daughter from your father God. Like that's the most important role you can play. And that's the identity that we get invited into. In fact, when we really get to know God as our father, like it changes everything about our lives. It even changes about how we would invite other people into it. Like the joy that we would have that other people might get to know our dad. Now, I was at a passion conference a number of years ago. Um, I'm a little older than some of you guys. Some of you didn't realize that they did passion conferences in like 2005 and 2006, 2007, but I can assure you I was at one of them. And I think it was 2007, I got to hear Francis Chan speak. I was a college student myself, and he was talking about um, being a parent to his daughters. And one of his daughters specifically uh, had gotten really bad grades at like her either her like progress report or like her nine-week report in school. And they had already proactively sent an email to her parents like saying, hey, just a heads up, her grades are terrible. And uh, he was like, we don't do bad grades in my household. Like this is not something that we, we are a part of. And so she's like in middle school or something. And he's like read the email. He's printed it out. He's probably like highlighted parts of it. You know, how do you have this? And there's math, you know, like all this stuff. And he was like, as I was driving up to pick her up from school, the Lord like changed the posture of my heart. And he said, I watched my daughter walk out from school and kind of like bop her way towards the car, but it wasn't her normal joyful gait. Her head was down, her shoulders were drooped because she knew what she was bringing home as, a, um, as like a display of her you know, academic achievement. And he said, as soon as she opened the door to the car, I said, I am so, Francis Chan said, I am so excited 
for you to get in here. Like, let's go get ice cream. Let's go buy some new clothes. Like, let's go buy new shoes. And he takes his daughter to go get like our favorite ice cream. And they go to like a park together and they go buy new shoes and all this stuff. And she's like, dad, like, I've got something really bad to tell you. I've got really bad grades. Like, why are you doing all this? And he's like, you know, sweetheart, like, I'm not, I'm not failing to pay attention to the places that you didn't achieve. But like, I want you to know that my posture to you, this is what he said to his daughter, is more concerned that you walk in an identity that adores you, that cherishes you, and that treasures you as my dearly loved daughter than it does that you met my expectations of achievement. Now, how do you think she brags on her dad after that? Right? That's the best dad in the world. Like, I want Francis Chan to be my dad, you know? And um, it's just like it shows off something else. And here's, here's the reality. Do you do, this, do you do things that grieve the heart of God? Yeah, we do. Like, we still, even in our salvation, struggle with sin that grieves the heart of God. But the identity that we've been baptized into as a dearly loved son or daughter means that his posture towards us is more about his love and grace and adoration to us, available to us through the work of his son, than it is us falling short with our man-made effort. We have a good dad. Second thing is we get invited into understanding the identity of Jesus as the son. Now we see him as the son that didn't just come as the sacrificial servant, but is now also the victorious king. Like you are friends with the one that occupies the throne over all creation. You're friends with him. He calls you friends, co-heirs, brothers. Like you get the same inheritance he gets. Like the king of all creation, you're invited to walk in that identity that like he's your older brother and he's your best friend. You're invited to walk in that identity. And the third one is the Holy Spirit to empower you. Uh, in fact, we get to see the, the, the Trinitarian, this Trinitarian view present at Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. The Father speaking to his son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And obviously Jesus himself being present. His Holy Spirit empowers us to live out like what Jesus prayed about us in John 17. That we would be sent into the world in the exact same way that Jesus is sent to the world. Did you know that? Did you know that you're sent into the world the exact same way Jesus is sent into the world? That's what he prays. That's what he says over you in John chapter 17. If you don't believe me, you, you, can, you don't have to take my word for it. You can go read it for yourself. Jesus prays for you to come to the conclusion that it's the Holy Spirit that sends you into the world in the same way he was sent to the world. You don't go anywhere on accident. Everywhere you go, you are missionally promoted and encouraged and cheered on by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the identity you walk in. You're either a dearly loved son or daughter that's best friends with the king of the universe, and that everywhere you go, you're sent on purpose. And when we get baptized, dead in Christ, risen in Christ, that's the life that we get to walk into. That's the identity of, of using those phrases, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I go back to say this. Baptism is supposed to be about your testimony. It's not supposed to be about a religious event. And in America, I have a bunch of friends in fact, like Matt, I thought of you when you were reading, like you, I was at LCA working for a while, you were at LCA, there's a ton of people that if you ask them about their relationship with Jesus, they'll tell you what age they got baptized. Well, I didn't ask them about what age they got baptized. I asked them about what's their relationship with Jesus. And sometimes we're like, oh no, I already, I already checked that box. Like we're good, you know, I, I've already been baptized. But here's the sad truth. Our nation is full of people that have resumes that include their baptism, but testimonies that don't talk about their faith being in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's a travesty for us. We don't want that to be true. I mentioned J.R. and Bailey's wedding that I got to be a part of uh, last week. I got to celebrate them in the first service. 
And there's a moment in the wedding where um, we have couples give each other rings. You've probably experienced this before at weddings. And when the person puts the ring on somebody else's finger, they say, you know, something along the lines of, with this ring, I thee wed, you know, whatever. I always have people say, with this ring, I thee wed in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you're watching from an audience standpoint, that's not the moment that they got married. Like, that's not one little isolated event. That's part of their entire wedding process. Like, that's part of the giving away of the bride. That's part of the vow language. It's part of that, you know, the literal marriage license is part of that. Like, there's a ton of things that are part of that. And so, like, when we think about our baptism, like, it's not the moment of salvation. It's a part of our salvation process, most notably our response. And one of the things that I think is important for us to realize is I even say this at most weddings. Um, when people slip the rings on each other's finger, I say, now, hey, I just want to challenge you with something. Like, when you look at that ring in the days going forward, for some people, you know, usually the, the females are already been wearing an engagement ring, so they're kind of used to something being on their finger. A lot of times guys, it's the first time they've ever really worn a ring or any jewelry at all. When you start looking at that ring, please don't think of your wedding date. Please think of the person you're married to. And when you look at your baptism, please don't think of a date that's written in the front of your Bible. Please think of the person that you're married to. Please think of the person that has saved you. I mentioned Jesus' baptism earlier and the entire Trinity was present, and that the Lord himself said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The reason, one of the reasons that we follow in baptism is our baptism reminds us to hear that from our God daily. This is my son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. There's another statement at the end of uh, the Gospels where, uh, I think it's in in Luke, where God says, um, well done, good and faithful servant. Did you know that you were created to hear that? You were created to hear the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. But here's the problem, is that many of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, settle hearing that phrase from far lesser masters than the Lord himself. We give other people the keys to say well done, good and faithful servant that actually can't speak to our created being in the same way he can. We hear it from spouses, we hear it from friends, we hear it from coworkers. We hear it from parents. We hear it from kids. We hear it from anywhere and everywhere. We hear it from job opportunities. You were created to hear that phrase. I want to affirm that. But the only person that can really speak it to you, to where it matters and shapes who you are, is God himself. And part of our baptism is for us walking out in the newness of life, being buried in Christ and raised in Christ, that we get to hear that spoken over us because of the work of Jesus every single day day. So in conclusion, what work has Christ done for you? What work has he done for you? Has he really, for you, has, is he the one that disarmed sin and shame and, and disarmed those that would accuse you of it, that defeated that, defeated the record of debt held against you and defeated the accuser that would remind you of it? He has. How should you respond to that work? Should you worship? Absolutely. Should you be grateful? Absolutely. But the Bible would also say that you should be baptized. Also, absolutely. Analogy that I've heard often when it comes to our obedience of baptism, um, and I can't help but be a sports guy, is baptism would be like playing on a team but not wearing the jersey. (laughs) Like if you're a follower of Jesus, it's the jersey that displays the declaration of your transformation and your testimony of transformation. And so I want to say this. There are people in this room that have, just like me at those camps and conferences, felt guilty and wanted to be rebaptized. 
I'm not giving you today's message to try to stir that up. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you've slipped up and you've already been baptized, even if you have slipped up since, even if it happened when, even if your baptism happened when you were young, um, I would actually encourage you to stare at the cross that has the record of debt nailed to it and to celebrate your participation in the resurrection of Christ. We preach the gospel to ourselves. I am saved every day, but I don't always feel saved every day, right? I'm saved every day because of the work of Jesus, but I don't always feel saved every day. And when I don't feel saved, I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to be in community with people that preach it to me as well. In fact, like I mentioned, oftentimes I'll close the Bible study of wherever I am, maybe in a discipling conversation, and we'll just take time to preach the gospel to one another because my heart needs that. God knows what he was getting into when it came to saving you. Like even if you were young and you didn't really know all the ins and outs, I know now at 36 far more than I knew at seven when I gave my life to Jesus. But I also know that God knew exactly who I was at seven, exactly what it took to save me and sustain me. And so I'm able to fight the urge of like, do I need to be rebaptized? I know so much more now by staring at the cross and listening to the Holy Spirit affirm his work in my life. That being said, there are also people in this room that might have been baptized as kids or as younger people and you might have been baptized and not been saved. Like, baptism is not like getting your car registered at the DMV. Like, it doesn't matter when it happens. Okay, like, oh, as long as license plate's up to date, you know, we're good to go. One of, the, one of the important parts of it is not that you check it off your list as a spiritual resume, but that it's done in response to your belief in Jesus. We believe that's the central part of it. And so we remember that this is not just a religious activity we remember that it's a testimony of your declaration and transformation. So if you were a younger kid, or maybe you like raised your hand because somebody had you close your eyes and raise your hand because all your, you peaked and all your friends raised your hand, you were like, I'm into, you know, as a kid at VBS or something like that. And you got baptized and it was like, man, I don't know if that was about transformation or not. I just know that everybody clapped for me. But now you've been walking with Jesus and you feel like this tug on your heart. Like, I would ask you to investigate that, and I would also say that you're a perfect candidate of baptism. In fact, we've had stories at this church of, like, men and women that have faithfully followed Jesus for decades, but feel like they were baptized before they were saved, and are like, I've got to be obedient in this area. And in fact, the Lord used that to start conversations in their families, to start conversations in their workplaces, to start conversations among their friends, because they feel like they actually followed through with baptism in response to their salvation. So if that's you today, I just want to encourage you, like you're not crazy and you're not like weak in admitting that, like we would want to celebrate that with you. And the last thing I would say is that people, there are people in this room that delay baptism out of some sense of readiness or out of some sense of like, man, I haven't gotten rid of those sins yet. I just, those two areas I'm trying to clean up. Okay. Again, God doesn't love a more improved version of you more than he loves this current version. Like I look in the mirror or I get to January 1st every year and I make all these resolutions because I would like an improved, I would love confessionally an improved version of myself more than like the lazy, slobbish version of myself, you know? Jesus doesn't do that. And so he's not waiting on you to get it all together before you step into this act of obedience. And so I would just say, if that's you today, that I would just encourage you to take a step of obedience and to follow Jesus with the declaration and the testimony of what it means to, to really live out your baptism. Now, if you've got kids in the room, we want to encourage you in those conversations with your kids. Um, we want to encourage you that we empower you to shepherd and lead your families. But one of the things I always tell parents when they're kind of discerning, like, when does my child need to be baptized? Because I don't want to be that person that's like, man, I feel like I just did this as a kid because my parents wanted me to or whatever. 
One of the things we look for, one of the things I always encourage is the difference between wanting to get baptized and needing to get baptized. There's not a person in this room that doesn't love to be celebrated and love approval. We all do. And so if it's that that we're seeking at baptism, then like, I don't know if it's your salvation that's producing that. But if it's a need, a tug on your heart, a step of obedience, I think that you will be able to discern that. And so for moms and dads, discerning that for their kids, like ask, ask questions that might invite them to, to kind of give the why behind the what. Because if it's need, I believe, this, I believe the Holy Spirit can live in a seven-year-old and that seven-year-old start to communicate, hey, I feel like I need to get baptized. I feel like this is a part of what Jesus is asking me to do. And so we don't want to be the Holy Spirit for people. We just want to encourage them to lean in and listen. And so here's our application for today. If you're a believer that has followed in obedience or baptism, first and foremost, like, I just want to say what a joy it is to walk with you towards heaven. It's just a joy. And part of what we're going to do today is we're going to reflect on what our baptism means for us, what it means for us to walk out the identity of being a dearly loved son and daughter, what it means for us to walk out the identity of being empowered and sent, what it means for us to walk out the identity that we are co-heirs with our best friend, King of the universe, Jesus. Like this is what we get to do. So we're going to celebrate that. We're going to pray into that and we're going to worship that. It's not ironic that when it comes to baptism, it's symbolic of a practice that we should do daily. And that's hygiene, right? Hopefully most of us are doing some form of hygiene every single day. Most of us eat something or drink something every single day. And the two sacraments or ordinances that Jesus himself says to pay attention to are when you eat of this little cup and wafer, like, yes, take, eat, and remember his life and death and resurrection for you. But when you also eat McDonald's, please also remember that it's God that feeds you. He would probably be more nourishing than maybe most of our fat food places. But, you know, it's still God that feeds us. It's still God that provides for us. And when we get baptized out of a response to our salvation, it is absolutely like life, death, and resurrection lived out, dead in Christ, alive in Christ. But when we wash our hands or take a shower, keep in mind that it's not a religious act that cleanses us. It's Jesus that cleanses us every day. We're going to sing a song at the end called There is a Fountain. And it's going to talk about how like, we perpetually live under a fountain of the, of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And it's not based on how many times we get baptized. It's based on the finished and complete work of the Son himself. Like, that's what we get to live out. And so every time you wash your hands, man, you know, I, th- I know the CDC says, like, sing happy birthday. Really, I would just tell you to pray, like, God, thanks for cleansing me. Like, thanks for being the one that keeps me perpetually clean. Thank you for like taking care of my sin once and for all. You, there, he will never get tired of hearing that. And you will never be, uh, be able to thank him enough if you did it every single time you washed your hands or took a shower. And so I don't think it's ironic that when it comes to food and when it comes to hygiene, that God would say those two things should always remind us of his work for us. If you're a believer today and you've not been baptized, then I would just encourage you to take a next obedient step. We pray regularly that there's not a week that goes by that we don't see the baptismal water stir here. So you know what that means? I would love to see 52 in a row. I would love to see 52 people in a row. We even have room for there to be more than one on Sundays. And I'm not saying that as we're like trying to make some expectation to check off the list. One is important, but we would love to see the baptismal waters here. And you might be one that gets to start that just by taking an obedient step, even if you've walked with Jesus for a long time. The last thing I would say to those two groups, two believers, is not only how do you reflect and respond to your own baptism or your need for baptism, but who are you praying that you can baptize? 
Who are you praying that you would be somebody that gets to, jo- gets to join in their story of transformation and their testimony of salvation, that you might be able to be part of that? We gave these little cards out a couple weeks ago about praying and prioritizing praying for people that need salvation. Like, it's my prayer for us that we become a praying people that also get to take in the stories, men, women, boys, and girls, of baptizing their friends or seeing their friends walk in the redemption and the transformation of the Spirit of God. And then lastly, if you're here today, we talked about being dearly loved son or daughter, and you feel anything and everything but that. We talked about having your shame and sin taken care of, and you feel like you carry it every single day. Like, I want to invite you to come know Jesus. I don't want to invite you to come up here and get dunked. We don't even have that available today. But I want to invite you to come know Jesus and to come know the one that would love to speak identity into your life, that would love to save you, that would love to call you his own, and that would love to launch you out on a, on a walk and a path and a trajectory that's unlike anything you've ever experienced before, because it would no longer be against him. It would be with him for eternity. So if that's you today, like, please come talk to one of us. Come up here and, and speak to us. Talk to the person that you came with. If you came with a friend, come talk to me. I'll be hanging out in the back. I would love to know um, that you said yes to believing in Jesus today. We can worry about all the baptism stuff in the weeks to come. Um, thank you guys for, for being a part of today and join me. Just go, you can go ahead and stand as we prepare our hearts for worship and to respond um, to who he is and what he's done. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you that as we come to take to this table to take, eat, and remember, um, it's kind of the same emphasis that you put on our baptism, that we take, eat, and remember the kingdom that we are participants in, and we are buried in Christ and raised in Christ to walk out our life as kingdom participants as well. Jesus, we just are thankful that our baptism is not a, something that's just rehearsed and routine. Like it is a testimony that you call us son and daughter, that you call us dearly loved and chosen ones, that you call us best friends and co-heirs, and that you call us your ideal missionaries. And we get to walk out that identity because of what you've done for us. And so, Lord, remind us of what it means to be buried in you and remind us of what it means to be raised, to walk in the newness of life that only you can give. May we worship you today um, from that place. May we just be reminded of that truth. In your name we pray. Amen.